Welcome to the Field Architecture Podcast. My name is René Boer and I'm here with my co-host Mark Minkian. Hey. And Charlie Clemos. Hi, yeah. Hey. Hey, Charlie, you have been working on a new episode. Yep. Video games is the subject, broadly. Video games and space, city space. Tell us more about it. Yeah, I uh, I mean, it's a big subject. Mm -hmm. It's a really um, difficult one to tackle in a way because, first of all, I wouldn't consider myself uh, a gamer. I, I'm interested in the, the form. I'm interested in where it's going um, and the kind of fringe elements of the indie gaming scene. But I um, I would say that I've probably played computer games for a few hours in the last two years or something like that, you know. And um, so it really was a learning experience for me, you know. I, I, I wanted to think about the fact that there's this huge virtual space and what, what is it doing to our idea of the world out there, IRL, so to speak. I just use quotation marks there. That stands for in real life. But I, I wanted to know, I guess, before we get going, maybe um, both of you can talk a little bit about what for you is significant about the intersection between games and space. Perhaps Mark, starting with you and a particularly striking experience playing games. I mean, my, my when I just moved to Amsterdam, um, that was around the time when GTA, so Grand Theft Auto Vice City came out. And it was... It was mind-blowing. You could really like freely walk around in the city and experience. In this case, it was a it was a um, it was a city modeled on Miami of the mid mid 1980s. Yeah. You know, you could drive around in cars, listening to music from that period. So you'd be listening to Michael Jackson, for example. You could you could just you'd have some missions, you know, some people to beat up. It's a very violent game as well. That's maybe not the best part of it, but so you could do you could try to complete all these missions, but you could also just decide not to and just drive around and explore the city. And um, that was that was this this enormous like sense of liberation. I think that this this game carried that was that was mm. really special to me. So during the first months that I was living in Amsterdam, I think I spent more time in this virtual <laughs> vice city than I actually spent in IRL in Amsterdam city. And that, I mean, like that that's kind of what brought me to it as well. I think this like, idea of like, like what kind of concrete effects does that have on the way that we experience the environment out there and i mean this is quite an, it's, it'd be quite interesting to talk when we were kind of planning this episode renee um you quite often talked about pokemon go as like mm -hmm. you know you've got to cover this and and i i don't know i don't know what it was i don't know what it was for you um but i also didn't know what it was for me it's not talked about in the episode but it, it's something that kind of really really sparked my imagination in the in the first place was this kind of interaction between the real world and the fake world. Do you, like, yeah. do you want to kind of explain your interest in particular? Yeah, in for sure. I, I've been quite obsessed with this, uh, the, the Pokemon Go hype, because it, like for the first time on a large scale, it allowed for like an augmented reality game on people's phones. So, um, so it pushes people, uh, kids in particular, I think, to go out in their cities and to explore them and to to capture these elements and to go around and find new streets. Uh, it gives you all kinds of new information about your, your urban environment. 
And I think what that is quite amazing. And it was all kinds of like places that were suddenly like filled with kids finding this particular yeah, thing that they had to capture as part of the game. There was also all kinds of places where normally like nobody goes, <laughs> like hidden churches or cemeteries that were suddenly like uh, full of like kids uh, running around. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, it, yeah, it was a short hype. I think it was only a few months, but it has like such an enormous potential. I think we'll definitely see more of these kind of games that really intersect with like the urban environment right away. And I mean, like there's a positive and a very obviously negative side of this, isn't there? I mean, it's it's something that um, can easily be used to direct or divert people mm-hmm. to yeah. the wrong or the right places. You know, there's instances of people getting mugged. Yeah. And you can imagine it being used by governments to kind of say, hey, like you'll get points if you go to this area, which isn't filled with protesters. So... Gaming is quite a important and underappreciated subject, but um, I should say, you know, obviously because we're a podcast about architecture and the real world, that um, there is there is going to be a, a kind of constant interplay throughout the episode about like how certain games throughout the history of gaming and presently have tackled space within the games how gamers have interacted with space and how that has how that has imprinted on the way people live throughout their life and i think it it really comes up in what you both describe you know and it's a subtle thing but with all that in mind i'm quite keen to start the episode and i start by talking about a very clear interaction between a computer game and um my experience of the real world maybe we should just leave it there and start the episode (laughs) let's do it You're listening to the title track of Streets of Rage 2, a game released on the Sega Mega Drive games console in the early 90s. Streets of Rage 2 was the first game I can remember playing. I can just about recall the space in which I was playing it, the living room in my friend's house in Devon, a predominantly rural county in the southwest of England where I also lived. It was the mid-90s, I was about five at the time, and as far as I know, I had never been to a big city. Until recently I'd given little thought to the implications of my five-year-old self being exposed to this highly stylized and, let's face it, fairly negative view of the inner city. But last year I came across a short essay on geographer Ollie Maud's blog, Tacity, about the so-called scrolling beat-em-up, of which Streets of Rage is perhaps the best-remembered example. Entitled Scrolling Beat-em-ups, Urban Blight and the Neoliberal City, the essay's main argument was to draw a parallel between games like Streets of Rage, Final Fight and Target Renegade, and urban policy narratives emerging at the time which professed the need to clean up the dirty, crime-ridden inner city, in particular by introducing zero-tolerance policing, empowering individual enterprise, and subtly displacing inhabitants of these spaces through gentrification. I sought Ollie out to talk a bit more about the essay. It's funny, I mean, the context of these games, I guess, is really interesting because um, in the 70s and the 80s, when the technology was being developed, um, and in the early 90s, when it was becoming a little bit more prevalent in mass consumption, I guess, the sanitization of the city was was well underway. Again, couching that in the um, uh, 
in the late 70s, early 80s, when inner cities, particularly in the States, were really run down places, right? This, the white flight in you know, the post-war meant that all the, you know, the white middle-class people were living in the suburbs. That's where all the money was. And inner cities were sites of deprivation in a, um, and underinvestment. And so um, there was a real sense that this was being played out in media. And I think when the computer games were being developed, there was a sense that they were kind of creating a product that they knew would be mass marketable. And that was around urban decline and, 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 you know, that image of the the inner city being a really dangerous and exciting place to be, particularly if you can create a game where, you you know, you're beating the crap out of people. That, That sort of stuff happened in, or at least it was shown to be happening within the inner city area. So you get games like Final Fight, uh, which, you know, where you've got a mayor, like, you know, Hagger, the, the, the sort of mayor of the city, who's this big, beefy kind of... Um, ex-wrestler. Ex-wrestler, that's right. Uh, but he's the mayor of the city, and there's this massive crime syndicate. And playing Final Fight now, again, as I do, on my phone and back, in, back at home on the PlayStation, it's like, this is, you know, this is kind of what New York was probably going through. I mean, in a very kind of... Uh, computer games kind of stylized way but the mayor right coming down with his with his uh, his mate who's a, I think he's like an ex-cop right they're coming in and basically doing enforcing zero tolerance policing it's it's the he's the mayor with the police a kind of you know governance uh, urban management structure just going through and just cleansing the city of this, this of this crime so yeah so there's a, there's a striking similarity there for me anyway between the the neoliberalization of the city, particularly in its declining American inner cities of that time, and the, 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 the sort of subsequent games that came out, Streets of Rage again being, being another one. Ollie, like me, didn't grow up in the inner city. So I asked him whether he felt these games had an effect on his idea of urban life when he was younger. I think so. I mean, I think there was a certain, obviously there's a certain naivety to this. And, um, you know, where I lived is not that far from London, so we did go up fairly regularly. But it was always very, you know, in the family setting and it was always quite kind of around Christmas or whatever it was. So it was all in a sanitised sort of view. And yes, there was this sense that, you know, London was a dangerous city. We actually managed, around that time, um, I was lucky enough to be able to go on holiday to the States, actually, a fair few times. Um, and again, we went around New York and uh, Philadelphia, um, Detroit, Los Angeles. And, and again, there was a real sense of, wow, I'm in the city. I'm in, I'm in that kind of target renegade streets of race kind of place. And, you know, I clung to my dad because I was like, right, I don't, don't, you know, this is quite a scary place. Hear that? I'm in that target renegade streets of rage place. While this is just one reflection, I think it's fair to assume these games had an influence on people's reading of the city at the time and they present an incredibly right-wing view of inner-city life. This got me thinking. Can games do the opposite? Can they open people's minds to new, progressive ways of experiencing the urban environment? It's long been acknowledged that music, film, and other established forms of culture have been instrumental in crafting people's perception of the contemporary urban experience. But the role of games in this process has been grossly underappreciated up till now. This, despite the fact that the gaming industry is by now bigger than film and music combined, and, considering AR and VR technologies are on the brink of going mainstream, will only become more influential in the century ahead. If we continue to neglect this relationship, games will be inclined to reproduce negative and reactionary representations of city life. So, while I could spend the rest of the episode dwelling on similarly problematic depictions of the urban experience as can be found in the scrolling beat-em-up, 
I want to use this opportunity to advance the cause of a more progressive interaction between virtual game space and the built environment. There's a lot of indie developers out there and very, very few of them can actually make a living out of this. That's Rosa Carbo Mascarell, a digital designer and creative coder. Rosa is especially involved in the independent gaming scene and has hosted several game jams. That's like a hackathon for gamers where games are produced over a short space of time by a gathering of writers, programmers, artists and game designers. I figured it was important to start with the indie scene since, as with other cultural forms, it's often the place where the experiments happen. At this point, she was telling me the link between the financial situation for indie game designers and the effect this has on the games being made. So we're seeing a lot, uh, a lot of video games, particularly in smaller platforms like itch.io, um, where people are creating games for each other or for friends or for a small group of people or just to express themselves. Is this like really clearly manifested in games kind of being cheap but experimental and kind of celebrating the form a little bit yes there's a there's a celebration of being experimental but at the same time there's this tension of people still wanting well to pay rent right <laughs> and living off of what they like doing uh so i think particularly indie publishers are in an interesting position where they're kind of uh um the noble lady in the house with a whole bunch of indies outside wanting um, uh, her patronage, basically, where these uh, indie publishers, um, they have the ability to fund a lot of experimental games, but at the same time, they're in the position of, yeah, but we want to make them marketable at the same time. Um, so it's similar sort of situation. Rosa's alluding to London's Grub Street, which, in the 17th and 18th centuries, was host to a large concentration of impoverished hack writers, spurred on by the diminished costs associated with being a writer, but forced to subsist quite close to the action of inner-city life. She sees parallels between their situation and that of contemporary indie game designers, insofar as it's now much less expensive to produce a game, but rather difficult to sustain a living out of it. I asked her how this situation is translating into the games being produced. Yes, yeah, so a lot of indie games, particularly now there's quite a rise of what people call self-care games, which are games just about day-to-day uh, -day life, taking it slow. Um, in fact, I organized a game jam just in March of last year called the Slow Game Jam, which was all about looking at video games that are about slowing down and taking mechanics to a very almost meditative pace and it, it grew really big that that game jam it went um uh, worldwide and it was it, i feel it's because it resonated with that current that we're now seeing of people wanting to express their day-to-day -day, but also find ways of taking care of themselves because it's a stressful situation not being able to you know find money for what they're what they make so th the way i see video games is that you have the designer, which creates a situation for you to experience. So it becomes a conversation between the designer and the creator. And the powerful thing about video games is that you're interacting with that situation. And therefore, you can get a deeper understanding of it because you can go like, oh, if I do this, what happens? If you do that, what happens? Um, and, and therefore, understand that other position better. But also add a, add a bit of yourself in there as well. One genre of games that's found particular success by pursuing this slower and more contemplative approach is the walking simulator, or walking sim. 
As the name suggests, they're also among the most geographical games you're likely to come across, insofar as they really strip back the action and place particular emphasis on the player slowly exploring the environment in which the game places them. As it happens, I first heard about Walking Sims by way of an essay Rosa wrote on the subject, which is available on her website. One of the games she mentions in the essay is Dear Esther, arguably the first game that could be considered a walking sim. Originally produced as a PhD project by Dan Pinchbeck, Dear Esther was released on the online games platform Steam in 2012. In the game, you explore a remote island in the Scottish Hebrides, all the while listening to an intermittent voiceover from an anonymous man reading various letter fragments addressed to the eponymous Esther. What you're hearing now is Jessica Curry's beautiful soundtrack for the game, and I'll pause for a bit for you to hear one of the letter fragments. He still maintains he wasn't drunk, but tired. I can't make the judgement or the distinction anymore. I was drunk when I landed here, and tired too. I walked up the cliff path in near darkness and camped in the bay where the trawler lies beached. It was only at dawn that I saw the bothy and decided to make my temporary lodgings there. I was expecting just the aerial and a transmitter stashed in a weatherproof box somewhere on the mount. It had an air of uneasy permanence to it. Like all the other buildings here, erosion seems to have evaded it completely. Walking simulators are video games which, instead of forcing you to interact with an environment and, you know, how most video games are known for, you know, heavy interaction, right? You do something, it appears on the screen, and that feels satisfying. Walking simulators were going against that. So they were about very minimal interaction, All you do is walk around an environment and experience the space. And in that way, it made you focus on the space and focus on the stories which you could then find in the space. Specifically, I I seem to recall that there was like a... There was a game, uh, is it Bioshock? Like you put it down to easy, kill everybody? Yes, yes, yes. Could you explain that? So, okay, so... um, Bioshock was a video game which seemed like a normal shooter, right? You have a gun, you, there was these zombie-looking creatures which you kill. Um, but what's interesting about the game is that it has really, really good environmental storytelling. And so what I used to do was I'd put the game down to easy, kill everyone in the first minute or so, and then spend the rest of my time in that level just exploring and finding the stories that were found on that in that space. Why do you think like the developer in- introduced these small things? And am I right in thinking maybe you could explain this more that someone involved in that actually went on and made the okay, yes. yeah. So I mean there's two sides of this. One was that video games were still learning how to tell story in a way that wasn't cutscenes. So before it was, you had a little bit of gameplay, and then you had a cutscene, which is just a, a, a couple of minutes of video explaining the story, and then some more gameplay. Uh, by putting the story in the environment through these details was a way to try and tell the story while you were playing. The other side of it is that 
big video games like this, they try to cater to everyone, right? So they were trying to appeal to both the people that just want to go around and shoot things and the people that want to appreciate the story. What ended up happening with Bioshock was that uh, a level designer who was working on Bioshock called Steve Gaynor broke off and decided to start his own game. And when they were thinking about what to make, uh, they, they were like, well, we don't have a character artist, so how can we tell a story just through space? So essentially they grabbed what they learned from Bioshock's environmental storytelling and turned it into just this narrative experience, which was about exploring a house uh, to figure out where your missing sister was. And this was Gone Home. Dear Katie, I'm sorry I can't be there to see you. I'm... I'm just sorry. But please, please, whatever you might find, don't tell Mom and Dad. I don't want them to know. I don't want anyone to know. I think video games, particularly walking simulators, uh, are a form of digital psychogeography. So psychogeography is about the reading of spaces, usually in a way to then subvert them. It was a phrase that was first coined by uh, Debord and the Situationists, and they basically used to get drunk and walk through Paris and think they were going to break capitalism that way. Um, but it's all about learning how to read spaces. Um, and I think walking simulators are really, really good at teaching you how to do that. So not everyone can explore real cities and you get things like urban explorers going into abandoned spaces as a way of learning and seeing the behind the scenes and reading uh, spaces, but not everyone can do that. Video games do allow you to do that and still learn how to read space. Rosa makes a pretty good case here. Walking simulators offer a fairly risk-free space in which to encounter and explore unfamiliar places thereby offering the player a chance to develop an eye for reading the urban environment differently, something which is especially helpful if the player has neither the ability nor the means to access such a variety of places in their everyday life. That being said, games that expose their players to different environments are nothing new, and while walking sims more explicitly invite the player to explore, it's worth looking at the ways that earlier and even more mainstream games have provided this opportunity to players. I put this to writer and veteran gamer Darren Anderson. Darren is the author of Imaginary Cities, a brilliant, meandering book which draws on a vast array of references to explore the relationship between cities in fiction and cities in reality. He's also been playing video games since his youth in the 1980s, and so, unsurprisingly, he brought the same breadth of references to our conversation. Here he is, speaking over the faint street sounds of London, explaining the particular impact that the 1989 side-scrolling platform game Strider had on his interest in architecture and his understanding of what it could be. When I played Strider, it was probably my favourite game as a kid. And Strider's set in a futuristic Soviet republic where you have onion dome cathedrals in the background, but you've also got loads of crazy robotics and space-age gravity chambers and all this kind of stuff. But that was probably my first exposure to Russian architecture in a very simplified, you know, 
graphics, but it led me to go and become fascinated for the rest of my life with places like St. Basil's. And a definite love of architecture and was born there and then. And it wasn't through seeing, uh, playing games about skyscrapers. It was about playing games where there was architecture that I'd never even dreamt of that actually exists. So that's a case of the real being more surreal than fiction and the real seeping into games and allowing that to happen. I think that's one aspect of plurality I'd love to see in games is games that are literally set everywhere because as I try to show, I mean, the one reason I have a Twitter account is to try and show how fascinating worldwide architecture is and how fascinating every single era of architecture, not to fall into binaries, these, these kind of false dichotomies of modern, traditional, east, west, but to show that there's just innumerable styles, innumerable places, and they're all taking influence from one another, and it's all symbiotic. If you love, if you genuinely love architecture, um, you should be exploring in all those different directions. Like I think of some of the most fascinating games cities-wise that, that I enjoy uh, are, are games that deviate from the kind of metropolises that we tend to fall back on, you know. So things like uh, the favelas and, and Papa and Yo, it's really, really, really well done. Or the kind of Mexican Day of the Dead and Grim Fandango, which is just an amazing game. And it's taken elements from everywhere, from noir, from Mexican culture and iconography. And it's doing something very different in a very different place. Sorry for the wait, Mr. Flores. I am ready to take you now. Take me? Take me where? Now, now. There's no need to be nervous. Nervous? No. It's just your appearance. It's a little intimidating. Intimidating? Me? But I'm your friend. My name's Manny Calavera. I'm your new travel agent. I don't want a new travel agent. I want to go home. <laughs> you can't go home, Celso. You're dead. But you're not alone. Everybody here is just as dead as you. That's why we call it the land of the dead. Are you ready for your big journey? No. What journey? The four-year journey of the soul. It is quite a big trip. And I can't lie to you, Celso. It could be very, very dangerous. Unless you were to take that money you were buried with and buy a better travel package from us. I mean, wouldn't you rather cross the land of the dead in your own sports car? Maybe try a luxury ocean cruise? Or, if you led a very good life, you may even be eligible for a ticket on the number nine itself. The number nine? That's our top-of-the-line express train. It shoots straight to the ninth underworld, the land of eternal rest, in four minutes instead of four years. But very few people qualify. Let's take a look at your records. Hmm? Mm. Games like Grim Fandango and Paparino introduce players to parts of the world that aren't so regularly depicted in the media. But Darren also has a theory that early video game developers use the form to explore not just different places, but different futures. One of the things I noticed in games early on was that you would get, um, you would get the Japanese view of the world 
and you would get the sort of American view of the world. And occasionally you get... I grew up in a lot of British games coming from a sort of 8-bit background initially. So you would get these views, but there was always a sense that the world was much bigger than that. You know, the world didn't stop at Tokyo or New York or London. And... um, the technology in those days, the technology wasn't there to actually give representations of cities that you could actually explore. So in the very early days, you, you had these games where these amazing cities would be in the backdrop and you were always going towards them. So it was either racing games or sort of uh, real shooters like Space Harrier and things or um even games like Outrun, where you're always driving towards this amazing city and the city was always scrolling, you know, backwards and forwards in the background and you never reached it. And that was always our dream in the, in the 80s and 90s was always like, we want to get to those places. That's where gaming needs to go. It needs to, we need to have these games where you see those cities in the horizon and you eventually arrive at them and you can do anything. And I think the first game where I felt the sense of being in the city and being able to do anything was the first Grand Theft Auto even though it's very primitive now looking back, that was really mind-blowing at the time because it was, it had released that sense of pent-up frustration that we had for a long time. But I noticed, remembering back to those days of always having these amazing cities, you even had it as latest things like Wipeout where you had these just amazing futuristic spaces but you couldn't really interact with them apart from, you know, outside of the racetrack. And... When I, when I started getting really into art and art history and uh, a, fascina- a real fascination of mine is the Northern Renaissance. So I'm really obsessed with Bosch and Brugge Elder and people like that. And, and all, all, all through that period, actually, um, they always had a similar... I started joining the dots. They had a similar thing where they would use the spaces and the backdrops of religious allegorical paintings or or even portraits sometimes and they would smuggle in these kind of utopian spaces in the background just like the the early game developers did so you would have you would look at a at a bosch painting and it would have some kind of lesson the garden of earthly delights or something in the in the foreground and in the background you would have these amazing buildings that were just they still look like the future. They still look like these dreamscapes. And um, you could never reach them, but they were always there. They're sort of like a, there must be a religious aspect to it, like it's a heavenly place or a satanic place. And so growing up in games where you had a fairly limited palette at the time and limited reference points, even though they were all fantastic games, that particular moment um, that suggestion of something else that there's a, another world out there was really really tantalizing that's the place we always wanted to get to and I find it fascinating the painting had that as well they knew that the future was coming and they were anticipating it it's kind of like yeah this sort of parallel of modernism with both right the northern renaissance sort of falls at the very beginning of of like the modern period yeah. right yeah so it's kind of like we, we've got this capacity now and yeah Something's going to happen, you know, in the first conception of... You know that something's going to happen. That that desire and that vacuum can be there for a long time in, in cultures. 
and I, I seen it with, with the internet. I'm convinced that people subliminally knew that the internet needed to happen. There, there was just this gap. So we were trapped in the analog and we were dreaming of the digital, as someone said recently. Um, so the anticipation was there, the need for it was there. And we were, we were sort of grasping at what it might actually look like. But I mean, th- there was also a, a, a geographical aspect to that. And a, Street Fighter 2 is a good example because that was the first time I was exposed to a lot of those cultures. And it's, they're very stylized views. You're listening to the theme for Zangief's stage on Street Fighter 2. The stage is set in a Soviet factory. There's signs in Cyrillic, a large hammer and sickle marked on the ground, heavy industrial apparatus, and some tough-looking factory workers cheering on the fight. It's a stirring sight. Other stages take you to a castle in Japan, a flamenco tavern in Spain, a casino in Las Vegas, the Amazon River Basin, a Maharaja's Palace, a shopping district in Hong Kong, and several other international locations. I mean, they're not accurate representations of Brazil and Russia or the Soviet Union at the time or, or wherever, but... It's like downtown uh, Hong Kong or something, isn't there? As yeah, well, it's Chun-Li's yeah. Is, is Hong Kong. So you get... But you do get aspects of truth. There are... They, they have those sort of Hutong alleyways hmm. in the backdrop and they do... They, there is something about the Soviet Union and a huge you know, smelting foundry or whatever it is that Zangief's in. Um, and he's like the Stakhanovite kind of yeah, worker, right? Yeah, there's, there's, there's these kind of, it, it's telling what, in a way... What, what are we, the characteristics? Yeah, yeah and what, cliches, why are they being? Cliches yeah. are, you know, can be offensive and they can be, they are reductive, extremely yeah. reductive, but it is interesting to look at the way one culture, in this case, Japanese developers, see the rest of the world. So... And I mean, we've been doing that forever, forever in Western art with Orientalism, looking at the East and projecting our fantasies and desires and everything onto it. And I mean, some uh, some of the, my favorite games architecturally aren't even games about cities. So one of the games I absolutely adore is Shadow of the Colossus. And the reason I like it and the reason I always connect it to cities is because there's a sense of scale you get when you're fighting those those bosses when one of them suddenly stands up and you get this immense sense of scale and proportion, it's just, to me, it's, it's, it's like my first times going to cities when I first seen skyscrapers and I came from a place where nothing was higher than a church spire and then going to these great metropolises where literally the, you almost get vertigo just looking up. It sounds a bit like looking for the sense of the sublime within the yeah. video game. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, sublime is is definitely the key, and that and that goes for all culture. I think that that's what I'm after, even in actual. Sense. One thing that Darren kept coming back to in our conversation was the question of what games can do that no other art form can. Of course, this is a broader question than the one I asked at the beginning of the episode about whether games can open people's minds to new ways of experiencing the urban environment. 
But the answer to this broader question goes some way to answering the more specific one. When games do what no other art form can, they also invariably provide us with new ways of reading the world around us. And perhaps more importantly, when games start really rising above previous art forms, they're more likely to be accepted as a medium that has a power over people's everyday experience of the city. To give a better idea of what I'm talking about, Darren helpfully turned to the earlier precedent in cinema. There's a thing they always say about Tarkovsky in film where he created, I don't know, I think Ingmar Bergman might have said it about him, but he created a cinematic language that was only possible in cinema. You know, it wasn't an adaptation of a play. It wasn't an adaptation of a book. It, was, it, it wasn't a painting. It was something that exists in and of cinema and c- can't really be translated outside of cinema. So it's this pure kind of form. I'd love to see a game. I'd love to see us reach the, the a point where we can have games that are like that, that don't need to be compared to books or even where we're not even wondering, is this a work of art? You know, I want the games, the game to stand as this thing that can only exist and it's a masterpiece in its own kind of right. I really applaud the fact that it's happening. The games have a mind and a heart now as well as the energy and the visuals and everything that they've had for a long time. And I, I did, I remember in the past wanting games to be less stupid. <laughs> There's a place for stupid games. I play. Yeah. I played like the most idiotic games and the most violent games. And um, but just that they're too much. They're just pushing the cheapest buttons, or not? Yeah, the cheapest, they, yeah. They, they, and, the biggest buttons. Like. We we need more as as people. Um, but I do think there's limitations on, on on what we can achieve and with the technology that's existing at the moment. But I love that it's heading in that direction. I think there are some games that have done done it really well. I think Dear Esther is a really good example. I've played that. That's a really, really interesting game. It's a really fascinating game because it's just, it's so artistic and atmospheric and there is a sense of, you really get, I mean, that's probably the closest I can think of to get to a real empathetic experience with someone totally different. But, you know, whether you, you can totally suspend disbelief and really get into the heads of these people and let it change you. I'm, I'm more. I'm a bit more critical, and I know a lot of gamers who uh, see that that sort of genre and steer well clear of it. So there is a danger of uh, preaching to the converted, and it's going to be bookish people like me who want to know about different people and cultures that are going to gravitate. It's not going to be the dudes I play Call of Duty with. Sure. You know. Yeah. And that, that's, their, that's their problem. But you do need, I, I think we need a way of, um, of uh, infiltrating the mainstream. But what you're saying, I, I, keep, I keep thinking of um, something like um, Playtime, the Jacques Tati film, you know, yeah. where you've got like someone who made extremely popular films and then was given loads of money to like make the film that he had in his yeah. head. Yeah. And he built a whole city, you know, and, and it was... I love, I love uh, Just Tati. a bewildering... A mess of a brilliant film, you know, like, and you kind of want a big studio to sort of put all their faith in some yeah. indie gamer to speculate. It'll, prob- it'll probably happen, and I mean, I, th- I think it's already happening. When you see the the Last of Us, there there is a sense of of bigger companies having to raise their game. If you're having intelli- really super intelligent games, you know, you, it's like the tide has to rise. You really have to start stepping up. 
Playtime's an important reference point for me when thinking about what a game can do to our experience of urban life. As I said in my conversation with Darren, the film's director Jacques Tati practically managed to have an entire city built as a set for the film, and he used it to explore the modern metropolis in incredibly minute detail. Indeed, such detail that you can't fail to see the built environment in new ways after watching it, as something alienating, surreal, aggressively bland, unnatural, and ordered in a way that's frequently counter to the chaotic tendencies of humans, and nature more generally. To echo Darren's sentiments about Tarkovsky, it did all this in a way that only cinema could do. There's another side to this. It was only after more than half a century of cinema that experimental filmmakers were likely to be entrusted with the necessary resources to go ahead and produce films like these. And before these resources were available, it wasn't as if filmmakers weren't being experimental. Playtime stood on the shoulders of many hundreds of other experiments with the form. The history of gaming is strikingly similar, and it hints at the fact that games are already in a position to pull off the same feat as Playtime, and present a progressive and mainstream challenge to the norms of everyday urban life. To get a better idea of how this history of cinema compares to the history of gaming, I spoke to Hannah Nicklin. Hannah is a writer, narrative designer, game designer, academic, creative producer and artist working at the confluence of video games, performance and community-based practices. She also has a PhD in theatre-influenced games and games-influenced theatre. With all this experience, she put me right about quite a lot of assumptions I'd thus far been making about gaming. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Which bit? Well, in, in generalising to the level of games, like... Certainly, I think that sometimes shorthand is necessary and you, you do sometimes go, oh, film is bad at something or theatre is really good at this. But actually, you're always talking about a specific kind of game, film or theatre. And a lot of games aren't very good at, like, some stuff, but there are loads of really interesting games who have always been challenging itself as a form. I, like if there from, is a, from the beginning, kind of yeah, from the beginning. And I think that the history that games keeps of itself, especially because formats and technology changes so quickly, it's really easy to lose your history. Um, and because it hasn't necessarily, maybe it struggled to. Um, find recognition as an art form, all of the means of the pre-existing infrastructures which keep histories of arts haven't really caught up with games yet. So there's like, there haven't been archives available at the level that there's they needed whole, to be. There are whole swathes of the history just completely gone because... Like, and it's presumably in people's memory, right? But like... Just about. Yeah. But like also there's a problem of a lot of people, it's still... When people say it's a young industry, I don't mean that it's a young art form. It's really not. Like, it's been around long enough now. And there have been loads of really fucking interesting experiments, like, from the very beginning. Um, and offshoots, which maybe you wouldn't call games, but, like, the net art movement, which certainly was influenced by games and games technology or approaches. There's, like, loads of really experimental stuff. Um, but also, a lot of people leave in their 30s and go work in different bits of like the arts or like culture or te or technology and programming because it's uh it's rarely publicly funded certainly in the UK people are trying to improve that it the there is a way of working which encourages burnout in a lot of places and it's 
not particularly it's not really sustainable it's as an industry in the way that it's designed it's designed for young people at, at the moment there there are so many like 30 under 30s but like when you get to like the point at which the GDC have recently announced that they're honoring three people with like lifetime achievement something 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 and I, I'm, I'm sure one of them is only just over 30 really? and they're all men because an awful lot of women burn out because it's so inhospitable or um, have kids and just have no way of getting back into it because there's there aren't employment structures to support a bunch. And it's pretty bad in terms of, like, workers' rights and all that kind of thing. So there are lots of reasons why games hasn't recorded that it's been experimental. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is one of the key things that needs to be done. But, yeah, I wouldn't agree. So what games feature in this forgotten history of experimentation? In fact... Hannah chooses to situate experimental video games within a continuum of playful artistic practices which stretches back long before the emergence of video games. Whereas the virtual space of video games offered new ways of situating an audience member in amongst the action, Hannah looks as far back as the early 20th and even the 19th century for playful artistic practices which were already offering the same kinds of challenges to their audience. Bear with us for a moment because the performance practices that occur in this long history provide an invaluable background to understanding what it is about games and play which can positively transform the way people interact with their urban environment. So really early cyclorama from like the 19th century where people would paint important battles and arrange them on like a, a huge cylindrical room and you would go in and it would be like you were inside the battle or uh like you should always caveat the fact that they were also fascists and that's obviously shitty and um but the the futurists around like world war etc um they took performance and smashed it together with machines and said what's the machine theater like what do we do what happens if we're not here to make the audience interested or comfortable what if we double book a seat on purpose what if we put agent provocateur in the audience who shout at like our shitty performance or the dardaris they let go of coherence because what was meaning in a, like a world after the world wars uh what was meaning anyway how could anyone presume to make meaning out of this world and so they would mumble their lines or turn their back on the audience and uh, there are records of people having like started little riots because they weren't being spoken to <laughs> things weren't coherent you get things like the happenings uh yoko ono's practice in particular with fluxus all of it which challenges where art happens because uh, a piece of fluxus performance can be read anywhere and is up to you whether it's a thought experiment or a thing that you do uh happenings were huge blocks of ice that someone would push through a city in the summer and they were um they were performances certainly but they weren't in the place where you put performance and so it made an audience out of people maybe whether or not they wanted to be an audience and then you get increasingly in the 80s an interest in like VR and technology like that late 90s maybe MIT uh, you get people like Char Davis making a piece called Osmos which you control through breathing and it's like a VR headset piece from the mid 90s um, and it's about reconnecting with the natural world through a virtual environment and and breath 
but not only is it a piece for an audience member to just exist in, it also looks beautiful as an installation. So it thinks about the audience outside the audience as well. And then you get like the 2000s, the pervasive media studio in Bristol was a huge centre, an incredible place where academia and art and technology was all just put side by side. And unsurprisingly, a lot of incredible art came out of that time. So people were doing GPS performances using like iPacks. They were like with a cue. Um, that might actually not be the right right word, but they were like pre-iPhone iPhones. They were GPS, PDA style things. And people were making like location triggered performances out of like technology, which people are still thinking is a new way to tell stories now. Uh, like work by companies like Blast Theory, which are interactive theatre or city-based, playful, not enough words to really describe what they are. What's a, what's a good example of a... There's a, they did a piece called Rider Spoke, um, probably more than half a decade ago now, which was um, a piece for bicycles with little GPS units on them. And you would ride around the city um, and and sort of in, in search of stories that other people who'd done the experience had left. You're now listening to excerpts from Blast Theory's short documentary on Rider Spoke, which is available on their Vimeo account. And it turned into quite a scary, raucous affair. People were coming at the house from all angles with baseball bats, and we had to barricade ourselves in a bedroom, put the wardrobe against the door, and people were jumping out of windows and running for safety. We would like you to cycle through the city making recordings and eavesdropping on recordings made by other people. This is one of those moments when you're on your own. You might feel a little odd at first, a bit self-conscious or a bit awkward, but you're all right and it's okay. Relax and find somewhere that you like. It might be a particular building or a road junction. When you have found somewhere you like, give yourself a name and describe yourself. So I'm standing at Oxford Circus. Not too far from Clarkham Mill Green. I'm hiding by an old church on Helmet Row. I'm at the junction of Cheapside and Wood Street. Somewhere behind St. Bartholomew's Hospital. I found a building that's probably the shortest building in the area. In that whole experience, um, it was it was so carefully balanced between guiding someone through a story that was satisfying enough to be engaging at the same time as leaving so much room around the edges for how much you wanted to engage with it and also um, for giving you room to reflect on your version of this experience and the fact that others had had a different experience. Um, I think that part of the art of understanding humans in space in conjunction with one another is not just my point of view or their point of view, but how we intersect. In Hannah's long history of playful arts, the artwork is advanced as a space which is constructed by the artist, but which the audience member is invited to inhabit. As such, the artwork not only shapes, but can be shaped by the personal experience of the audience member. Video games have merely extended these possibilities. 
in particular by allowing the artist to create a whole universe in which even the basic rules that govern our everyday world can be put into question. There's something quite wonderful and also really hard about the space of video games because um, you kind of start from nothing. Like, you haven't even designed physics yet. Mm. And, like... You mean, like, within the world of a particular game? Or... Yeah, like, when you start with, like, we should make this video game. Okay, so someone has to work out how to program the fact that gravity works. If we want gravity to work, do we want gravity to work? How do we want gravity to work? Like, starting from that level of a built environment is, like, super difficult and also, like, super, like you, you, you have to answer every question. Um... And so you're in the process of creating a, a universe, I suppose. And you challenge the like, uh, yeah. As you build a game, you have to challenge the premise of everything, because you either are going to make it like it is, but you have to like, or you're not, but you have to check. But as Hannah emphasised just then, video games not only extend the possibilities for the artist, they also extend the possibilities for the audience member. Depending on how they are designed, video game spaces also offer a player considerable agency to shape the play in their own way. This recalls some of the things Rosa said earlier, namely that she sees games as a conversation between the designer and the player, where the player is invited to interact with the world which the designer has created, but, as she said, also add a bit of themselves and their own experience to this world. This approach to gaming is also especially present in a project which Rosa recently helped initiate, Games for the Many. Games for the Many is a collective of artists, designers and developers supported by the UK Labour Party who are focused on using the power of play to change politics, something which naturally feeds into changing the way people experience their urban environment. Games for the Many is a political games unit and we are working with Labour to make video games and one of the things we're doing is we're running game jams with both people that can make video games and then people who are activists or other groups who don't have experience making games but whose voices are important and whose personal experiences are important and by putting them together we get them to basically have a voice and also learn how to make games in the process and this kind of enhances perspectives right actually one thing because this is really really exciting um so i was i hope this this happens but like it's still in the talking stages but we're uh, talking with uh, a homeless shelter to do a game jam or a workshop with homeless people to make games with them. And I think that could be really, really exciting uh, because video games often, you know, you have to have a, a PC, you have to have certain skills in order to make video games. And this could be a really good chance to help people who don't have those skills to, to have a voice. Uh, really excited by that. <laughs> Aside from this, Games for the Many are also focused on producing games that help communicate Labour Party policies. Working as both a studio and a publisher, they're now offering financial support through Labour for other indie developers to produce games with the party. Yeah, yeah. So the way we see it is like the the way I was talking about the indie scene is kind of like at this bursting point. Uh, so we want to try and help those indie developers who are having a hard time finding uh, the funding help them through these small, intense projects, one, uh, have funding for that a period of time, and two, um, helping them have that portfolio piece with which they can then find more established funding as well. It's heartening to see a major political party get behind games in this way. That being said, in my conversation with Hannah, she did express some concerns about overtly political games. Such concerns which also weigh on the question of how much games can positively change the way we experience city life. The, 
There is a school of thought around games which I think is plainly and unequivocally neoliberal, uh, which talks about games almost as an engine for change. And um, it's like one of the main proponents for it is Jane McGonigal. Um, she's got a book called Reality is Broken and it's all about how you could improve everyone through games and you can change the world and um, you can make people feel better, you can make them more productive and very quickly it starts turning into um, an American Western neoliberal vision of better. Like she's always into like making people better and, and it's because she found games a useful tool for um, like the basis of it is she used games as a tool for helping her improve her health when she was going through a recovery process, which like I don't want to um, knock that as a like a thing that was important to her. But equally, I find it incredibly dangerous to think of games as tools for coercion, uh, as tools for um, f forcing people into roles. Um, or for um, giving people um, experiences which change their mind, or that um, which which have a product. As I said at the beginning, if we don't acknowledge the role games are already having in framing our urban experience, then we leave ourselves extremely open to simply letting developers completely mould our perception of certain spaces and scenarios. That said. I have no doubt that Rosa and her colleagues at Games for the Many are conscious of this aspect of politically motivated games. This is clear from the game jams they organise, which, rather than imposing upon particular groups, link developers with people who might not have experience making games, but whose urban experiences are important. Hannah also specifically highlighted this as the main way that video games can provoke a person to question, explore, and even begin to change their urban environment. Um, the way I would like to consider games is as useful tools for systems literacy. Um, the one of and if you situate that in anti-capitalist practice, one of the really successful things that capitalism does is that it consistently absorbs things. Um, it's always changing to adapt to a new uh, aesthetic or look or thing of like a thing that was pushing against it. It can very quickly make it its own. Um, so there is no use in producing a product. There is a great deal of use in understanding how systems implicate you, how they um, have an effect, how they are made up of um, many parts, some of which you can't see. If you can shrink that down into maybe a system that you can see uh, and ex you can learn from that maybe to look at the world slightly differently, like things are not always how they have to be. Sometimes you can make decisions that, uh, sometimes you can have agency or make room for your own agency. Um, so systems literacy um, is like a quite mm, uh, dry way of describing it. But I feel like um, if anyone's ever saying that a game should produce a political outcome, that's really dangerous. 
I don't want people to make games that can produce a political outcome because if you give them to the wrong, inverted commas, people, then they're going to produce political outcomes that you don't want. What you want is systems which allow people to learn systems, to maybe build their own games, to find the things that they want to say or ask or challenge. So it's a bit a bit about maybe kind of diverting people from the current um, uh, rhythm in which they're stuck in, right? And exactly. And sort of diverting them to other rhythms, I suppose, or something like that. As Hannah intimated, useful tools for systems literacy is not the spiciest of lines, but it pretty neatly sums up the kind of games we should be making and playing if we want to understand the city better. By inviting us to explore different experiences, scenarios, and, as Darren emphasised, places, games can allow us to become more aware of the rules that govern the cities we live in, and can thereby encourage us to intervene in these systems. As we saw at the beginning with Streets of Rage, they can, of course, do the opposite. But considering their ever-growing influence on mainstream culture, we need to take seriously the role video games can play in expanding, rather than narrowing people's understanding of the world. It's up to everyone to get involved to ensure this happens. For the Felon Architecture project to continue and grow, we'll be relying on the generosity of our subscribers. If you like this episode, please consider supporting us. Information is easy to find on our website, the support links in bright yellow. I'd like to thank Ollie, Rosa, Darren and Hannah for being my guests on this show, Jake and Emma for putting me up and offering their home as a makeshift London studio, Marek and Verity for also putting me up while I was in London, and finally, Natalia Dominguez-Rangel for the FA theme tune.